Welcome to Conversations for the Curious Mind, a podcast that considers social, political, economic, and philosophical perspectives of emerging issues. This series is hosted by the Department of Management and Accountancy at the University of North Carolina at Asheville and is created in the interdisciplinary spirit of the liberal arts. Welcome to the third podcast of the Department of Management and Accountancy series, Conversations for the Curious Mind. I'm Susan Clark-Mentine, Associate Professor of Management at UNC Asheville. And today's podcast is titled, Tackling the Gender Gap in Investing and Entrepreneurship. Two authors compare notes. Across sectors and industries, we continue to see very few women in top leadership positions. This leadership gap represents a missed opportunity. Research confirms that the broken and leaky pipeline for women in leadership leads to less innovation, compromised decision-making, widening economic and political inequality, and a lack of societal progress on delivering what would truly support women and their interests. Today, I have with me Ellen Carr, co-author of Undiversified, The Big Gender Short in Investment Management. We're going to have a conversation about similarities and differences in the gender gap and pipeline issues across investment management and high-growth, high-tech entrepreneurship. Ellen, I'd love to hear insights and highlights from your book. First off, what do you find are the most important causes behind the gender gap in investment management? Thank you for having me, Susan. It's funny, I never considered myself a gender equity warrior until I started writing this book. And while it's specific to investing and investment management, as, as we in the industry call, call ourselves, its learnings and messages are applicable to many service industries, the ones whose assets walk out the door each night. My co-author, who is also a portfolio manager, and I conceived the idea when we compared notes about our lack of women colleagues. We did a little digging and found that only 10% of portfolio managers are women. And just for background, portfolio managers are the people who actually manage your money. So if you own shares in a mutual fund, for example, there's one or more portfolio managers who are actually responsible for investing in the stocks and bonds in that mutual fund. So only 10% of those PMs, as we call them, portfolio managers, are women. Worse still, only about 1% of all the investable assets across the globe are managed by majority women-owned firms. So my co-author and I scratched our heads and thought, why is this so? And we began by debunking the usual suspects. So our industry is not what I'd call a Me Too industry with a lot of really bad male actors who um, commit sexual harassment and that sort of thing. It also isn't a work-life balance issue relative to other careers with higher female representation. Our uh, industry and our job tends to be as as flexible as um, just about any job in the service industry. And I would compare that to um, law, for example. So high-powered corporate law, you're at the mercy of your clients. You might be working 90 hours a week. Um, Very um, high-powered consultants and accountants end up working many, many hours a week. So our industry is not like that. If you do a good job uh, relative to the benchmark, then it doesn't matter how long it takes you to do it. It could be 10 hours a week or 100 hours a week. So once we debunk those, 
What we really looked into were the psychocultural barriers that contribute to the lack of women. And in particular, there's this lionization of confidence in our industry. So women statistically, and there's a lot of studies that bear this out, are at a structural deficit when it comes to confidence relative to men. There's this great Harvard Business uh, Review study that shows that a man will apply for a job when he believes that he has 60 percent of the attributes that are listed in the job description. Whereas a woman is unlikely to apply unless she believes she has all 100% of those attributes. Um, Why is this important in investing? Investing is is an industry that lionizes confidence. So for you to be a good investor, a good portfolio manager, you have to walk into a client meeting and say, I believe I'm going to outperform the benchmark by 200 basis points. That would be a lot in our industry. You also, if you're an analyst providing ideas to portfolio managers, you have to express a lot of conviction. There's this great sort of catch-all phrase in our industry, the high conviction idea. So you have to walk into the room with a group of probably white male portfolio managers and say, I think Amazon is going to double in value this year, and here's why. And that conviction and confidence does not necessarily correlate with good investment results. However, it is something that our industry has come to prize above all things because everyone's looking for that magic silver bullet, the thing that will outperform um, every other investment in the portfolio. Um, so the grim good news for us is that unlike some of the what we call the bro industries like tech, for example, active investment management is ripe for change. We failed, by and large, to deliver what we promised to our clients. And by the way, I'm talking about any of you who are listening to this podcast. Unless you're out there investing in individual stocks, you are our clients, and we have not delivered what we said we would. As a result, we're losing share to what we call passive strategies. So those are ones where the portfolio managers don't actively pick stocks. They just mirror what's in the index and what's in the market. Um, And the reason that people are voting with their money, people like you, and moving to a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, a tracker fund, as opposed to a Fidelity actively managed um, large cap U.S. stock fund, is because we have not delivered returns that are as good as the market. Um, So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to draw conclusions about the potential that diversity has to fix our industry's problems. If 90% of our not-so-great, lackluster results are being generated by white men, why wouldn't increased diversity be part of the solution to this shift away from our industry towards these passive strategies? Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing your, your understanding of the nature of the problem. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And I especially appreciate the, the myth busting. It's one of my favorite parts of being a researcher. So your rich understanding of the specific industry context is fantastic. So in your book, what solutions do you and your co-author propose for closing the gender gap in investment management? Well, again, there's some good news here. Um, Our research turned up a number of off-the-shelf fixes, um, things that other industries and other firms with much better gender representation have tried and have succeeded in doing to increase both the number of women portfolio managers and the market share of women-owned investment management firms. So in the book, we discuss what we call the investment management flywheel. A flywheel, I believe, is an engineering term. My co-author has an engineering background, so she's the one that came up with this idea. But it basically 
basically means that it's always spinning, it's always in motion. And there are various points along the supply chain of investment management where you need to reach in and try to fix it while it's in motion. So the first point, of course, is at the entry level. So entry level women, and that can be women even before college, look at our industry and they don't see role models. So they don't see those Warren Buffett females out there talking to the world and saying, I'm a good investor and this is a job you should consider. Um, So the fewer undergrads that pursue it, the fewer of them end up going to business school and getting an MBA. And those MBAs, when they end up at business school, they look around to see if there are any portfolio managers who come to recruit on campus. And when they don't see that, they don't see those role models that they can say, oh, there's a woman who's got three kids and is doing a great job beating her benchmark. I want to be just like her. So then, of course, the few women who do make it um, become portfolio managers, but they look up to the C-suite of the investment management firms, which is pretty standard, um, you know, relative to corporate America. There's not a lot of female representation. In our research, we looked at the top 10 publicly traded mutual fund companies and found that only about a quarter of their board members are women. So that's a little bit better than corporate America average, but not much. But you can see that all along these points in the flywheel, which is constantly in motion, we're finding a deficit of women who can inspire and mentor and become role models for those very young women who might be entering the workforce at this point. Um, So that proposes a lot of solutions along um, the trajectory of that supply uh, pipeline. First, at the early level, so even girls as as young as, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I did a small presentation for Hanger Hall last week. It's a local middle school, a girls' middle school. And um, just having people come and talk about their jobs, having women come and expose their day-to-day and give young women the opportunity to learn about the career goes a tremendously long way at that entry-level point towards Um, angling women towards the career as an option. So then at the MBA level, there's also a need for exposure. So that, again, is the role models, the people who investment management firms send to campus to recruit, also female professors in the classroom, uh, like uh, Susan, um, really helps to get women motivated um, to pursue the career. And then once women go to work at the large firms, there's a lot of studies and research and data available that says that if firms just start tracking their data, they will do a good job of understanding why women aren't succeeding, why they aren't being promoted, why they aren't staying, why they leave um, at various pressure points in in their their, both their work life and their personal lives. Um, One of the things we think is so interesting when we did the deep dive into what Um, practices large investment management firms have now, and they are changing, is that a lot of firms don't track their own data. And it's ironic because that's what we spend our lives as analysts and portfolio managers doing. We are data fiends. Um, We analyze the companies that we hold in our portfolios six ways to Sunday. And yet when you go up to the upper management level of a lot of these investment management firms, they don't do that. So they're not taking the same time and research intensity that they apply to their companies to do for their own firms. Um, So we think that a lot of 
data will help to ensure equal pay and evaluation standards. Um, there's also some need for cultural norm changing. So, for example, the investment meeting, the investment call is one of the um, sort of standard weekly, uh, even more than weekly meetings that we have in our industry. And a lot of times the female voices get drowned out by the louder, you know, both both physically louder and then also higher conviction voices of their male peers. Um, lots of firms are experimenting with ways to make that more of an equal process where all the voices get heard. One of the firms that I used to work for is now using um, an app called Jabber in meetings to make sure that everyone gets in line to ask their questions. So once you hit the button, then your line, um, your place in line is, is assured. Um, we also need to devalue the high conviction culture that undermines results anyway. I talked about that before, where the confidence does not necessarily correlate with good results. And then finally, we need to move more women into senior portfolio management and C-suite roles and ultimately board roles once they leave investment management. Um, and then just a, a word or two on small firms here. I happen to work now for a small majority women-owned firm. And so we are struggling to um, attract assets, as, as all firms are in this hyper-competitive market. But there's good news here, too. What we call the allocators in the book. So those are the large pensions, um, the large public plans. You may have heard of CalPERS or New York City, New York State. They are um, starting to reimagine evaluation criteria. One of the structural challenges in our industry is that everyone's resume is basically their track record. But because there are a lot of very specific auditing standards that go into calculating a track record, most people's track records are not what we call portable. So I can't have a great track record at one firm and then go out on my own without um, incurring a lot of wrath from these, these regulatory bodies and market myself as, you know, this one person's track record. Because I did it at my old firm, it's not disclosable in a new firm context. So we think that just relaxing some of those standards and looking for more creative ways of evaluating manager competence will go a long way towards allocating or towards allocators feeling comfortable with those women-owned firms. These are excellent examples of low-hanging fruit, very actionable. And I love the analogy of the flywheel. It's more active and dynamic than, than pipeline. And also, I agree, collecting data and particularly conducting exit interviews and recording those and having that data for why women leave would address the leaky pipeline. So thank you for sharing those. So my context is entrepreneurship with a special focus on high-growth, high-tech entrepreneurship, where the gender gaps in who gets funded and the amount of equity funding is the greatest. And I have a, a book co-authored forthcoming in 2022 with Cambridge University Press called Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, A Gender Perspective. And our research investigates how networks, culture, gatekeepers, and institutions perpetuate the gender gap in entrepreneurship. In this book, we attempt to reframe the problem. Moving from a focus on women's underrepresentation to men's overrepresentation. In other words, instead of focusing on why only 3% of all venture capital funds go to female founders, we focus on why 97% of all venture capital funds go to men. Research already corroborates that a lack of diversity leads to worse decision making, less innovation, while greater diversity at the top leads to better decision making, greater innovation, and better financial performance. If this is the case, it begs the question, why are we barely moving the needle, if at all, with respect to gender diversity at the top of investing and industry? 
Another way to reframe the research question is who benefits or perceives to benefit from resistance to diversity and women at the top? And how are cultures, institutions, gatekeepers, and networks either not reaching women, keeping women out, or turning them off, and why? Ellen, why do you think there might be resistance to change among men at the top? In our business, in investment management, there are a number of these resistant pressure points. So some of it is just institutional and cultural norms. This is something that I think you would find replicated in lots of different, you know, bro industries. We heard one anecdote from a male hedge fund manager who has a very small firm, highly successful, and it's basically, you know, 10 guys. And he said, Honestly, we would love to hire more women, but it would just be weird to have, you know, the one 28, 29-year-old recent MBA graduate with us for the ski trip in, in Boulder. So um, that, I think, is is diminishing over time, but it is still a pervasive attitude, especially among the smaller firms that can get away with, I think, more than the larger firms that have really committed to increasing diversity. Um, Some of this resistance is supported by research that shows that adding one diverse person to a team, i.e. the one woman in a room full of nine other men, actually leads to weaker results. Um, She becomes the token women. What we found in our research is that 30 percent, so just about a third, is where those what we call salient minorities um, can really become a voice that gets heard in the room. So if there's only one of you, you're going to be much less likely to speak out. And incidentally, that might keep you from inviting other people of your demographic, other women to the table, because you might think, I got the one seat for the woman. I got the woman's seat, so I don't want to help any other women. Um, And I don't think any women go out of their way to do that, but it's just, um, you know, a law of numbers. Um, I agree that men stand to be displaced in our industry, so that's obviously going to be a resistance point, and these jobs are highly coveted and can be highly lucrative. Um, But in general, the men, especially the more senior men that my co-author and I have worked with and that we interviewed for the book, are genuinely interested in addressing the problem, and they don't understand it either. So in some sense, we think that the bigger barrier to diversity in investing is not men like the famous hedge fund cajillionaire who said disparaging things once, um, like once a woman holds a baby for the first time to her breast, she no longer wants to work. I mean, everyone sort of understands that that's, you know, not something that we can say anymore and that it's not true. But actually, the bigger barrier to diversity in our industry is is more likely to be senior white men who say things like, I don't see color, I don't see gender, I only see numbers. Um, in our case, that would mean performance results and investing track records. If that were true, then diversity would be higher because, as I said earlier, our numbers, frankly, are not great. So we believe that it's not so much resistance at the top as lack of understanding of the benefits that diverse investing teams can bring to the bottom line. Education is key, and we think that the hedge fund bros, like the one that I mentioned at the beginning, um, who will migrate towards more diverse teams as they see improving results generated at the larger firms that have HR departments who are focused on increasing gender diversity. Uh, Great anecdote, the same hedge fund manager I talked about um, saying that it would be awkward to have the woman along said that his advice to young women these days is go to work for a firm with an HR HR department because they're the ones who really are bringing along um, these increased um, diversity targets. We think that as that happens at the larger firm, market share is going to follow investment results, which we expect to be better. 
Um, Susan, I would also point out that your subject, why men get allocated the vast majority of venture capital funds, ties directly to the subject matter in our book. So it stands to reason that if most investors are men, they will be disproportionately likely to invest in management teams who look like them. While it's not the direct focus of our book, we stay mostly in the large public fund arena versus venture capital, which is off limits for most of us, most small and and retail investors. We do know that venture capital is, if anything, less diverse than the firms that we work for and that we write about. And of course, that means that they're missing out on some great investment ideas. Um, How many times have female entrepreneurs heard things in pitch meetings like, oh, maybe my wife would like this, but I just can't get my head around it. So we think, again, as we have more men uh, or more women in these portfolio management seats, it's going to lead to more diverse allocations to uh, female entrepreneurs. Great points, Ellen. While there are similarities with investment management, uh, interestingly, we don't find that the pipeline is the the main root of the problem in entrepreneurship. In the U.S., women have been consistently graduating from college and graduate programs at a higher rate than men. It's not a talent or capacity problem or a result of women not majoring in the right majors or having sufficient ambitions or confidence, in other words. Our focus is not so much on fixing the women as we find nothing wrong with them. What we hope is a refreshing contribution in this book is focusing on the gatekeepers and the deficits, if you will, and how entrepreneurs support organizations like uh, incubators and accelerator programs and small business centers and their leaders and other decision makers like venture capitalists perpetuate the gender gap. And one example is in how outreach is conducted, for example. If, as you mentioned, networks are homogenous, which they tend to be due to this human tendency towards homophily, or that is a desire to be surrounded by others that are like us or to support others that are similar to us, then word of mouth communication of events and opportunities or just using one's existing social media accounts is not going to be effective in reaching diverse business owners if there's a lack of diversity among those doing the advertising. And another example of a structural barrier that we see is the lack of mentors at the top, which you mentioned as well. The adage here for both investment management and entrepreneurship is you can't be what you can't see. Because there's so few women that head what are referred to in the field as unicorns or those rapidly growing venture-backed firms that are candidates for an IPO or initial public offering, Investors and other gatekeepers literally might not be able to visualize the founders and the CEOs of the next Facebooks, Googles, Amazons, Twitters, Apples, et cetera, as women, given those examples were all founded or co-founded by men. So in summary, we have a lot of work left to do to close the gender gap in leadership across the economy. And we hope some ideas shared here today will launch many, many more conversations about what can and must be done. One starting place for our audience is reading our respective books on the topic. We barely scratched the surface of ideas today, how to fix the problem. Ellen, where can we get your book? Well, speaking of Amazon with its male founder, um, you can buy our book on Amazon. Um, You can pre-order it. It's called Undiversified. If you just type in that word, it's the first thing that comes up. Uh, Happily, it was not a title that's been used before. Um, And as of now, I believe June is the ETA, but of course that changes uh, day to day based on the supply chain. And I'll provide a teaser here for the book that my co-author and I are working on already as a sequel, a comparable deep dive into why there aren't more women financial advisors. So stay tuned for that. 
Nice. That's awesome. Thanks, Ellen. I look forward to reading it. And thank you, audience, for listening. And I want to shout out a special thanks to UNC Asheville for providing the support to make these conversations possible. Thank you to UNCA's Kent Thompson for assistance in recording, Sasha Hussey for editing, and Brian Felix and the Ohm Trio for the opening music, a track entitled Head from their album Global Positioning Record. Thanks also to Alex Harvey, who composed and performed the closing music titled Standby. Please tune in to other podcasts in our series addressing current events and issues. In the meantime, here's to ongoing conversations and curious minds. <laughs>